You're at the Over or Under Show. I'm your host, Ed Henderson. And man, it's a crazy world we live in. It has no shortages of rabbit holes. I'm not scared of rabbit holes. If you're not scared of rabbit holes, this show is for you. Let's see if we can jump in one and make our way back to the top. Welcome back to Over and Under. I'm your host, Ed Henderson, and it's my third podcast concerning the Christian and alcohol. Matter of fact, this is my third podcast. If you're here again, I really do appreciate you showing up. We've gone over a lot of stuff in Scripture. We've gone over Scripture about Scripture, Scripture about alcohol, comparing English words to the Hebrew text, only to find out that the English translators who did so at the cost of their lives sometimes got it right. We learned that there are words like Mishra, Enab, which is grape juice. So grape juice is mentioned in the Bible, and any time that the writers of those early Hebrew texts wanted to uh, distinguish grape juice, they sure could have. We also learned that there is a word in the Greek lexicon at the time that it was written called trucks. Anytime that they wanted to indicate that there was grape juice, they would have used the word trucks. I, I hope at this point that you would agree with me that those people who brought us the translation, John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, 47 scholars of the King James Version, the people that worked on the Geneva Bible, all of the translations, the New American, the New American Standard, the New King, King James Version, New International Version, the Amplified Bible, even the Bible in the hands of the preachers who tell you that teetotalism is the way and that alcohol is a sin, or some of them do have a little bit of respect for the word. They just simply ask you, although it is in the scripture and you can, should you, which is bizarre. Also, I'd like to point out that well over 200 years of this war, uh, war on alcohol in scripture Today's lexicons still call wine wine. When they come across it in the Bible, they will refer to it wine because, quite simply, that's what it was. It's wine. You know, you don't even have to do a scholarly study on this subject. Just pick your Bible up, and any time that you come across the word wine, just substitute the word grape juice and see if that makes any sense. Here, we'll do it right now. We're in the book of Luke, chapter 7. We're starting at verse 33. And this is what Jesus Christ himself says. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. You say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, let's read it. The, let's play the silly reindeer game here. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking grape juice. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a, I guess, an abuser of grape juice, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That makes absolutely no sense, nor does it anywhere else in Scripture. So we're going to go down the rabbit hole that the Temperance Society created in the 19th century, and we're going to try to make sense of where this incredible grape juice theory came from, or even better put, the two wine theory. Now, by far, you have to give most credit to the temperance movement. Maybe the uh, British, the new British Foreign Temperance Society, maybe a little bit more so than the American, Irish, Scottish temperance societies, but collectively, they, they thrived in a bubble. And what I mean by the bubble is that they would have all their scholars, which they many times printed their works, uh, had them on a lecture circuit between the United States and Europe, 
and they would all sign off on the previous one's works or endorse it. They always found their endorsement and support within this bubble, and we're going to explore that a little bit more. Now, if I was going to give credit to one publication of the National Temperance Society, I would have to give that honor to the Reverend William Patton with his book, Bible Wines or the Laws of Fermentation. This is where the two wine theory really solidifies. He didn't come up with it, and I'm going to tell you where it came from. But if you would think of the Reverend Patton, much like you would Ray Kroc of McDonald's, the, the Reverend Patton found what he'd been searching for for years, somebody to substantiate his theory on two wines in the Bible. And he found that. He found that in two essays. Those essays would be Bacchus and anti-Bacchus. Their origins came from when the New British and Foreign Temperance Society offered 100 gold sovereign for anyone that could come up with the best essay on the benefits of total abstinence. And one more, I want to say this one more time. Whenever we say temperance, we're really not talking about temperance. We are talking about teetotalism. That's what it should be called. But let's get back to the Reverend Patton. Let's look who he dedicated this book to, Bible Wines. Uh, first person mentioned is Edward C. Delavan. He was a wealthy businessman, helped establish the Amer American Temperance Union, attacked the use of wine in the Christian communion, traveled to Europe to uh, promote teetotalism. The Honorable William A. Buckingham, he was governor of Connecticut. He chaired the 47th anniversary gathering of the American Temperance Union. The Honorable William E. Dodge, president of the National Temperance Society, uh, and this is what he says. He dedicates this book to the faithful trio, nobly battling for the right. Is this volume dedicated by their earnest co-labor and good cause of temperance? And as we continue, remember what I said about the bubble that they created within themselves. Each one of them would write something, would lecture, and it would be substantiated and corroborated by another member of the Temperance Society. Let's throw a hypothetical out there, see if I can draw a clear picture. Could you possibly imagine a situation where there was a president of the United States that was unpopular with some people? The FBI comes across some information. They find out it's not true. But somebody within the organization leaks it out to social media, to the media itself, and so you have reporters coming back to right where it started, and they verify it, and then it gets reported. So it's in a circular fashion. Nothing has been verified. False information is just circulating. And so it is with uh, the Temperance Society and their promotion of the two-wine theory. Let's, let's take a look at where the Reverend Patton gets most of his information from. And this is him speaking. A free use has been made of the London edition of Dr. Knott's Lectures on Biblical Temperance printed in 1863. This edition was published under the careful revision of Dr. F.R. Lees, who has added footnotes in five very valuable and critical appendices. He says the Temperance Bible Commentary by F.R. Lees and D. Burns, published in London 1868, has been of great service to me. I'm happy thus publicly to acknowledge my indebtedness to it for much judicious and critical information. I'm happy to learn that it has recently been stereotyped in this country and is for sale by the National Temperance Society. And then he mentions what I believe to be the source of all of it, because this, these two works predate those works by at least 30 years. Him speaking again, the Reverend William Patton speaking. 
The publication some years later of Baucus Antibaucus greatly cheered and strengthened me. So also did the lectures of the Reverend President Knott with the confirmatory letter of Professor Moses Stewart. From these and other works, I learned much as they made me acquainted with authorities and proofs which I had not previously known. So why were these works so important to the Reverend William Patton? Why was it so important for him to get enveloped in this bubble of the temperance movement in this theory of two wines? Quite simply put, he could find no support outside of that bubble. 1853, he gets chaired at the World Temperance Convention in New York. In 1846, he was in England as a delegate to the World's Temperance Convention. 1874, which is about the time his book gets uh, printed by the Temperance uh, Society, he goes to London to preach at the London's Temperance Hospital. Let's, let's read what Reverend Patton has to say during this early time as he's starting to formulate his theory of, of two wands. And that theory basically goes like this. If you're reading scripture and uh, it says something positive about wine, then it's, it's grape juice. It's some other drink. If it's spoken of negatively, as it was in Noah when he face-planted and I say negative, because, but I'm not really sure because God never denounces Noah for being drunk. It's silent. I'm not going to say God didn't have a thought on the matter. I'm just saying it's not mentioned in Scripture. So if something good's happening with wine, then it's a blessing from God. If it's something bad happening with wine, it's a drink totally altogether because God himself would never do or Jesus would never be involved in such debauchery. So in, in Reverend Patton's own words, this is what he says in his book. I soon found that the concessions so generally made even by ministers that the Bible sanctions the use of intoxicating drink was the most impregnable citadel into which all drinkers, all apologists for drinking, and all vendors of article fled. This compelled me thus early to study the Bible patiently and carefully to know for myself its exact teachings. I collated every passage and found that they would range under three heads where wine was mentioned with nothing to denote its character, two, where it was spoken of as a cause of misery and as an emblem of punishment and of eternal wrath, three, where it was mentioned as a blessing with corn and bread and oil, as the emblem of spiritual mercies of eternal happiness. These results deeply impressed me and forced upon me the question, must there not have been two kinds of wines? So novel to my mind was this thought and finding no confirmation of it in commentaries to which I had access, I did not feel at liberty to give much publicity to it. I held it, therefore, in abeyance, hoping for more light. I really do find it very interesting, his comment, when he says, So novel to my mind was a thought in finding no confirmation of it in the commentaries to which I had access. Now, what kind of commentaries would he have access to? I can only ponder that, but I'll share, you, I'll share this with you. He studied at Princeton the Theological Seminary. He was ordained, received his doctorate in divinity from the University of New York, and he actually founded a Union Theological Seminary. I mean, he founded a seminary. How many people did he influence with this uh, two-wine theory? But for a man who is so accomplished, so educated, I can only imagine the material that he possibly had at his disposal in getting his doctorate, yet he can find no commentaries at Princeton. Are you kidding me? The University of New York, he cannot find any support. And if you remember, he said earlier, 
I couldn't find any support with other ministers. Now, if you live in Walnut Grove, like Little House on the Prairie, that might not be impressive. But this man lived in New York City. So there were no shortages of ministers, no shortages of resources, no shortages of libraries. And this gentleman cannot find it. And hence, this is why the bubble of the temperance society is so valuable to him. The Reverend Williams Patton's influence would be felt hundreds of years later. Not only did he influence the people that were taught at his seminary that he founded, he was influencing people like Bruce Lackey. Bruce Lackey was the author of What the Bible Teaches About Wine. The Reverend Lackey would parrot the very same things that William Patton wrote about a hundred years earlier. This is what the Reverend Lackey, Pastor Lackey, I'm not sure how he referred to himself, this is what he says about Patton's book. More than a hundred years ago, this preacher was the only one in the town where he lived who believed in total abstinence. We established that earlier. Going on to quote Mr. Lackey, he saw that it was necessary to make an extensive study to see what Scripture taught. This book is the result of that labor and is the very best thing I have ever read on the subject. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Lackey has passed away, but I would like to ask him, did he ever think that the Scripture or the Bible was a better source than Mr. Patton's? But I think he found the same thing that Mr. Patton, he, could, he couldn't find any support in Scripture for that. Something else you should know about Mr. Lackey is he taught at Tennessee Temple for 19 years. He was dean of that Bible school for a decade or better. He taught this two-one theory to God only knows how many other pastors and how many of these minions have filled pulpits and preached this false doctrine of teetotalism. That's what it is. It's not temperance. People remember that Scripture teaches temperance. Temperance Society taught teetotalism. So we've talked about the Temperance Society, this nice little insulated bubble, this echo chamber in which their theories could continue to be reaffirmed and substantiated. I, this, brings, this brings me to where I wanted to go from the very beginning of the first podcast because these two guys deserve a lot of credit. This is what the temperance movement wanted. This is what they paid for, and they got their money's worth. Before I start talking about the essay, let me just read this. This is from the New British and Foreign Temperance Society, and they are going out trying to find an essay to substantiate why people should be teetotalers. And this is exactly what it says. The committee of the above society gives notice that they have come to a resolution to offer a premium of 100 sovereigns for the best essay on the benefits of total abstinence from all intoxicating drink. That's a lot of money, people, for something that's so obvious in Scripture, but they're willing to pay and they get their money's worth. Let's read the 10 criteria that they set forth in order for somebody to win this 100 gold these hundred gold sovereign. Number one, the essay must be written in the Christian spirit and with the design to benefit the bodies, circumstances, and souls of men. Number two, the proposed essays will contain the origins, progress, and consequences of the customs of drinking and drunkenness, both from sacred and profane history. It will comprise the medical opinions of the faculty, ancient and modern, with the sentiments of magistrates, judges, and the most eminent literary, scientific, and theological writers. 
it will produce scripture testimony that although the use of wine is not prohibited, it, it, except in certain cases and under certain circumstances, total absence from all intoxicating drinks is encouraged. It will contain statistical accounts of the evil effects of the drinking customs on the habits, wealth, morals, religious feelings of the community embracing the experience of other nations on these topics. It will contain details of committals, punishments, and miseries arising from drunkenness. It will present the amount of lost property, time, and intellect to the British nation by their use. Number eight, it will show how the various religious societies for the renovation of the world are impeded by the drinking habits of the populations. Number nine, it will present in an inviting manner the vast blessings which result to families, masters, mistresses, Servants, fathers, mothers, and children, and to some, the most degraded individuals from total disuse of intoxicating drinks. Number 10, it will also show the advantages that will accrue to trade commerce and the shipping interest to the arts, sciences, and the immense moral benefits it will confer on the nation and the world. Wow, that was quite a list of criteria. I often wonder why didn't they just write it themselves? But this is going to take, they're going to have to have, bring in some heavy artillery. I mean, after all, they are going up against Scripture itself. Now, the titles of these works are Bacchus, Anti Bacchus. Uh, Bacchus is written by Ralph Ginrod. Anti Bacchus is written by Benjamin Parsons. You can go look these up. They pushed the two wine theory. I just read you the criteria. They did their very best to hit all the points. After all, 100 gold sovereigns, a lot of money. You can go read it for yourself. But they went there with a preconceived notion. They went there with an agenda and they proved it falsely, mind you. But it did its work even 100 years later. I just heard a, a sermon preached by a pastor on YouTube and it was incredible. He was talking about the wedding of Cana and what he preaches. And I don't even know if he realizes how much he's been influenced by these bubble people. But he goes on to say that obviously they were drinking alcoholic wine at the beginning of the ceremony. And then Jesus made the right kind of wine, grape juice. So therefore, because Jesus could never make that amount of alcohol for people who had already well drunk. But he's even parroting this two wine theory. So you can go go online and download these essays and read them for yourself. Matter of fact, everything that the Temperance Society printed is available in some some form or fashion. Most of it you can download or you can buy the books if you'd like to. But there was one gentleman who was ironically also a supporter of the Temperance movement. He would go about debunking thoroughly these works because I mean they were they were quoting ancient languages, which he was a professor of. Let me tell you a little bit about who John McLean was. First, he was son of the first American professor of New Jersey, which would become Princeton. Uh, he did not have a professorship in uh, chemistry himself, but you can only imagine, I'm sure he did study, and much of what William Patton in these two uh, essays put forth is some interesting chemistry about how we come about the two wine theory about fermentation. Uh, Mr. McLean also graduated from Princeton in 1816, and two years later, he earned his Doctorate of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. He goes back to Princeton, where he tutors in Greek. He becomes a full professor of mathematics at age 23. McLean then shifts his profession 
professorship from mathematics to ancient languages until 1854, where he replaces James Conahan as the 10th president of Princeton. You can download Professor McLean's an examination of Bacchus anti-Bacchus, which were the two essays that the New British and Foreign Temperance Society bought and paid for and pushed and put in print. But this is what Professor McLean, or Reverend McLean, he also preached. Concerning the temperance movement, Professor McLean states, With them we rejoice in triumphs of the temperance cause in our land and other lands, and according to our ability we will cheerfully unite in the efforts to give an increased impulse to this cause. Later, he says, But while we make the declaration our interest in the temperance cause, we must enter our protest against the perversion of Scripture and of the fact which is found in these like publications. This perversion constitutes our chief objection which could have induced us to notice them. Had those who favor the views they contain contented, contented themselves with urging the expediency of total abstinence from all intoxicating drinks, they would have met no opposition from us. Although we might differ from them in opinion on some points pertaining to the questions of expediency itself, but when they invade the sanctuary of God and teach for doctrine the commandments of men, when they wrest the scriptures and make them speak a language at variance with the truth, when they assume positions opposed to the precepts of Christ and to the peace of, the, of his church, when in reference to wine, which the Savior made the symbol of his shed blood in most sacred rite of his holy religion, they assert that it is the thing condemned of God and injurious to men, and they use the language of the Judaizing teachers in the ancient church. Touch not, taste not, handle not. He's got to be referencing the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. Back to back to the professor. When Christ has commanded all his disciples of it in remembrance of him, we cannot consent to let such sentiments pass without somewhat of the rebuke which they so richly deserve. The good professor in this book then goes forth and he just destroys their interpretation of ancient languages and he puts them side by side. He he says what they said it says. And then being a professor of ancient language, I, I would have to say he has the skill set to do such things. I couldn't do it. And I don't believe Genrod and Parsons should have uh, took on that assignment either because he just absolutely obliterates him. Unfortunately, the good professor did not have the machinery of the temperance society to push this rebuttal. And typically when somebody would parrot something from these two essays, somebody from the, the ministry, a reverend, a preacher uh, would, would stand up and would print something. But like I said, they just did not have the machinery of the temperance society or anything to get that word out also. Incredibly, the, the temperance society does not make any mention of this uh, rebuttal. Don't you think if somebody attacked your work at such a degree I mean, saying that it is teaching the exact opposite of Scripture and you're calling Jesus Christ into question, don't you think that they should have come back with an answer to that? Don't, they, don't you think that they should have defended their positions? But I can find nowhere where they did so. And you know, why would they? They had way too much money invested. I mean, the 100 gold, the hundred gold sovereign that were given for the two essay was just the beginning of all the money that they would invest 
in printing. This stuff went into newspapers. People were sent on lectures. As I pointed out, books would be written 100 years later parroting these, these bubble things said by these bubble people. But outside of that bubble, it just didn't hold up. It, Patton couldn't find it in Scripture. He could not find it in the commentaries. He could not support it in the lexicons that he studied at Princeton from. Are you kidding me? Listen, we've gone over a lot of stuff. And if you still don't believe what Scripture says, I would highly recommend that you read all this stuff. Read this stuff from the temperance. Read this stuff by... Uh, Professor McLean, and he wasn't the only one that stood up and uh, tried to uphold the Word of God. Remember when we started off, I told you, I read you several scriptures uh, concerning Scripture, and the common theme there was you're not to add to these words and you're not to detract from these words. The teaching of teetotalism is the antithesis of anything that the Scripture teaches about alcohol. So, Again, I thank you for staying with me. If this is your third time joining me, I really do appreciate it. And I hope that this has cleared something up for you. All the confusion that has been interjected into this topic of the Christian and alcohol. So I think that's going to be enough for today. I do thank you for your time, your attention. There's some things for you to check out. Go check out Bacchus, Anti-Bacchus. Uh, Professor McLean's response to them, and more about the Temperance Society. I think you will find absolutely why this has become a very confusing topic when it need not be. So until we meet again on Over and Under, God bless. Bye.